My guest today on the podcast is Robert McKee. Robert McKee is regarded by many as one of the greatest experts on the subject of story and in particular screenwriting in the world. He has presented his story seminar hundreds of times all around the globe over the past 30 years to screenwriters, novelists, playwrights, poets, you name it. Those who have learned from McKee have called him the Aristotle of our time because of his insight into the substance and structure of the art of story. McKee's former students include over 60 Academy Award winners, 200 Academy Award nominees, 200 Emmy Award winners, 1,000 Emmy Award nominees, and much more. I could go on and on, but I think we'd rather let him talk. So I am beyond thrilled to welcome to the podcast, Robert McKee. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Whoa, Robert McKee in person. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Pleasure to be here. Oh, my God. I'm so thrilled. I, I would like to just be the first to um, wish you a happy Valentine's Day. We are. It's it's not only Valentine's Day. It's also my uh, anniversary. Oh, my God. You... Yeah, my wife and, and I. And you're now, here with uh, me. That's <laughs> you have your uh, priorities. We'll be going to a really nice restaurant, but um, yeah, it's our twentieth. Wow! So the um, anniversary, Happy Valentine's Day! I am I am beyond thrilled to have we, you here. We I mean, got married. We got married on Valentine's Day for the obvious reason, yeah. so that I would not forget. Forget the anniversary, <laughs> and that's working out pretty good, is it? It works. <laughs> Very nice. Well, Robert, I must say I am um, I'm very happy to having a have a having a friendly conversation with you because um, I first heard of you um, from the movie adaptation oh. where you were a fictional character and um, being played by um, Brian Cox, I believe it was the the actor, and he was mean. He was just he was a mean guy, and so I was kind of afraid of like meeting. Robert McKee. And then um, then I took your story seminar a few years ago and it was like really fun and funny and you were delightful. And I was like, what a relief that is. So it's really nice to meet you. Well, you know, Brian Cox's meanness as me is uh, relative. Um, <clears throat> I've sat in audiences uh, a number of times watching that film. And uh, when Nicolas Cage asks the question, yes, but what about people, um, what about characters or people <clears throat> who, in whose lives nothing happens? Nothing happens. Then what do you right. do? And that's yeah. when the McKee character goes down his throat. <laughs> yeah. He says, yeah, what do we want to write about real life? So real life? Because that kind of thinking is really elitist. <clears throat> that most people, nothing happens in their lives. I mean, that's just absurd. People suffer. 
and they have ups and downs, mostly downs from one end of their life to the other, <clears throat> struggling with relationships, with their own mind, with their own self, <clears throat> with, the, with the world to achieve. People are in a constant struggle <clears throat> to get out of life something of value. And the notion that, um, that these people's lives have nothing happening is, is as I said, what college professors, <clears throat> what brainy people in their arrogance would think about people who uh, <clears throat> work for a living. And right. so, and so I find that, uh, personally, I would find that, that, that question were to happen in real life, <clears throat> I would do exactly what Brian Cox did. <laughs> so that's a very good question. So how many, how much of that information from that character would you agree with? Was it all pretty accurate? Was it a pretty good representation? of? Well, my, son says, my son says he uh, Xeroxed me. He Xeroxed you? <laughs> he oh. said. I took my son to a, you know we had, to an early screening at the studio, uh-huh. and and uh, and I, you know it's one thing I've, I I have played myself in a on on screen before, and then you know to see yourself portrayed um, is an experience of course, uh, but imagine what it's like for a son huh. <clears throat> to see his father uh, huh. portrayed. And so um, at, after the end of the evening, I went to Paul and, you know, I said, what'd you think? And he said, dad, he got you. He Xeroxed you. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so I took that, you know, I chose Brian Cox to play me. Oh, you, you uh, personally and, chose him? Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. yeah because um, I'll tell you what, they gave me a list of, um, Actors, I mean, everybody from Christopher Plummer to Michael Caine, you know, the Michael top Caine. 10. I, yeah. I would, I would love to see Michael Caine do, do Robert. Well, it was the top ten middle-aged uh, actors in English actors. It was all English actors. Why is that? Why? English and um, you're, you're from Detroit. How come? Well, that's, that was their. That was. Uh, I took that as a compliment. Uh, because that was how the director uh, and the writer saw me as, okay. as somehow international. Okay. Uh, and uh, of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, I mean, they, they could have been, you know, when they gave me the list, I, I demanded, I said, I can't tell you who exactly to cast because availabilities being what they are yeah. uh but i want you you give me a list and uh i i want my choice and because i had to know what their philosophy was mm-hmm. uh, for all i knew this was the danny devito um you know uh Ackroyd school of casting all right all right and um so they gave me this list of british actors and i was very pleased and i looked down the list they were all wonderful. Uh, I said, um, I said, I, I get it, but I want uh, Brian Cox. And uh, and they said, who's Brian Cox? <laughs> and I said, he's the best British actor you don't know. Wow. So they went to London and they auditioned him, and of course they cast him. And the reason I wanted Brian Cox, if you're interested in this sort of thing, yeah, is. Um, all, all these actors, and they're wonderful actors, 
underneath everything they do, whether they're playing a good guy, a bad guy, or whatever, is uh, a sense of love me, love me. <laughs> yes, I'm hard on people. Yes, I'm tough. Yes, yes, yes. But in my heart is in the right place. Love me, love me, love me. There's always this thing <clears throat> inside of almost every actor's performance to try to draw empathy to themselves. But not Brian Cox. And you, you didn't think that was true to your and, character? No, I don't want to be loved. <laughs> I, I don't. I want to be respected. Okay. But I don't want to be loved. I don't, you know, I lecture to hundreds of people at a time. And back in the heyday, uh, 15, you know, 12, 15 uh, seminars a year everywhere in the world. And um, I don't want these people attaching themselves to my coattails. <laughs> and becoming followers and, uh, uh, you know, constantly calling me, sending emails, sending, sending scripts. <laughs> okay. They teach, they learn what I teach. They take it into their work. And now I, I wish them well. Uh, I wish them, you know, great success. But I do not want to be loved. I don't want to be followed. <clears throat> uh I just want them to learn. Right. And uh, and I knew that Brian Cox would give the kind of performance <clears throat> that says, this is the truth. Deal with it as you will, <clears throat> but do not follow me around. So that's why that's, I cast Brian. I, I do have a question for you. Just for the listeners here, um, our, our, uh, our audience, is, is this is the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. So many of our our listeners are coaches or therapists, you know, people who work with people and storytelling is part of a way of getting across a, a message, you know, a, a, a healing tale, if you will. Um, so I'm just want people to know that, you know, you, you are coming from a different area and yet story can work in so many different ways. And one of your great... It's the same principle. Um, a therapist doesn't want uh, their patient identifying with them. All right, sure. Therapist doesn't want uh, a, a personal relationship. If they, if personal relationships in therapy are disastrous for both people. All right, no, it's Freud true. Knew that, right? Freud, Freud had a name for it. What do you call it? I don't know, what it, it was a term, uh, not identification, but uh, <clears throat> when, the, um, when the patient starts to- um, <clears throat> Transference, I believe. Transference. Yeah, right. And this can be really useful to know if you understand it. Pardon? I said it can be a very useful thing to know and work with if you understand it, transference and countertransference, but you don't want it happening just willy-nilly. There, a line has to be drawn. So tell me about story. Tell me about how story is about life and is a, a metaphor for life and learning. And without story, we wouldn't have, you know, much of a civilization. I think that's a quote, close to a quote of yours. <laughs> well, human beings, I mean, God, we, don't, we don't know when, okay, but uh, somewhere hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, some proto-human uh, thought, the first human thought, 
which is I'm imagining <laughs> I am. And that separated human beings from animals. Mm-hmm. Human beings are the only animal with the capacity to see themselves as an object. Animals react to the objects around them in their world and they you know, respond to their own <clears throat> bodies and all the rest of it, <clears throat> but they cannot separate themselves from themselves. So at some point, the first human being did that. And they thought the thought, I exist, I am. The second thought was, and someday I will not be. Hmm. And at that point in evolution, uh, a living thing became conscious of itself as a self and of time and the realization that time will end and that they will go out of existence. Right? The stress of that is so enormous. And this is why human beings suffer in ways nothing else does. Human beings suffer, you know, um, existential sufferings and um, uh, of a magnitude and a quality nothing else does. And and so the, the realization that someday you're going to die forces you to ask the question how and why and when and whatever. And, um, and, and so suddenly a human being is trying to understand things that, about the world that no other creature does, which is how does the world work? Right. How does reality in fact work? <clears throat> Animals just re- react to reality. Human beings can imagine reality. They imagine their own death. They imagine time. They imagine, <clears throat> and they they struggle to figure out how things work because their survival depends upon it. <clears throat> and so, to make sense out of life, <clears throat> human beings began to uh, uh, create stories. I'm I'm guessing, and there's no way to know, but the first stories were actually not told in a sense. Uh, they were uh, probably danced. Hmm. <clears throat> My guess is that around the fire, the uh, uh, the you know from Neanderthals or even before, mm-hmm. uh, uh, people would get up and they would act out uh, the hunt. All right. They would act out the fights because that. I was an anthropology major, and I remember reading once that prior to, I don't know what, 5,000 B.C., 10,000 B.C., uh, 70% of all human beings died at the hands of another human being. And so um, they acted out fights. They acted out hunting. They acted out... And um, of course, there was all this unexplained phenomenon like thunder and lightning and wind and all the rest. Um, and so my, my guess is that the first art form, even before the cave paintings, <clears throat> um, was dance, where people were trying to make sense out of and, and, and prepare each other for here's what you do <clears throat> when you go on a hunt, 
here's what you do when somebody hunts you. Right. Right. Um, and so that would be the first form of storytelling. And it, it's, it's um, as a great critic, Kenneth Burke, once said, stories are equipment for living. And so we tell stories to understand life, to what it is to be a human being, <clears throat> what you can or cannot do in certain circumstances, to try to give you a sense of expectation of, um, of what, what, <clears throat> what the possibilities in the future. Yeah. And, uh, and so the, the, the need to tell a story, as I said, is born in the realization yeah. that you're going to die. Right, right, gotcha. Stories so, are all about equipment for living. So on that vein, since today is Valentine's Day and it's all about love and love stories and things, um, stories are probably a pretty good way to for human beings to learn about what love is and how to react to love or be in relationships. Yes. Yes, of course. And Do you uh, tell so we tell those stories all the time. Do you teach a separate course? Most, well, the most, the most common form of love stories, and not romance, um, especially today, the most common form of love stories is uh, family dramas. Mm -hmm. It's about the love relationships within a family. And uh, that, if you turn on, you look on the TV and you look at what's available, <clears throat> when you know, where... Well, like, like secession, for example, talk about Brian Cox. <laughs> it's a family drama, right? Right. Um, so that form of love, the child-parent, child sibling uh, love, is a great question. <clears throat> How did, because, you know, I've, always, I've, I've asked people occasionally, you know, if, um, if you have a friendship, and you have a brother or sister, family member, and each of them betrays you. Your friend betrays you, and your family betrays you. Which is worse? The family. No. No? No, that's not my survey. My survey, people said, <clears throat> betrayal of a friend is worse. Huh. And the reason they gave that answer was because they said, look, you're thrown into a family. Right. 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 You your you're friend. Right. It's not your choice. Right. You have to deal with these people, whether you like it or not. Okay. And so that, you know, that Cain and Abel, the brother against brother, that, you know, that, <clears throat> that the family betrays you uh, is terrible. Yeah. But not that surprising. <laughs> but you choose your friends. Right. You choose to become intimate with your friends. You tell right. them things that you've never told anyone, even your family. Right, that's for sure. And so you share, you share with friends intimacies of the, of the most poignant kind, and you trust that they won't betray you. When they do, it's a heartbreaker. That's so, um, uh, so there's those kinds of love, and then of course there's some uh, romantic love. Um, but the big, the big romantic love is an idealistic love. <clears throat> well, you're, 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 you try, you become the best person you can be to be attractive to the other person. 
they're trying to be the best person they can be to be attracted to you. And so there's a lot of idealizing going on. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that, that seeking um, uh, uh, commitment mm -hmm. in, a, in a relationship, marriage or something like it, um, <laughs> that's romance in a way. Uh, but the bigger love is um, uh, companionate love uh, that exists between um, couples as they move from romantic love to companionate love. Um, that's a big step. Sure. And, uh, because ultimately, romanticism is an idealization. <clears throat> and ultimately, reality sets in. Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean I, I can imagine any number of the human beings <clears throat> who um, fell in love, <clears throat> pursued each other in courtships, got married, went on a honeymoon, <clears throat> sat on a, a on a terrace overlooking um, some blue water out there somewhere, and looked across the terrace at that other person and asked themselves, who the hell is that? <laughs> and suddenly realizing they're in a legal, <laughs> and therefore, some unbinding relationship with someone they don't really know. They've only <laughs> known them for six, six months under the best of circumstances. They had the wedding. But I would think that that's a perfect they gotta, reason. They gotta, they gotta move to another level. That's, that seems like that would be a perfect reason for the existence of love stories, you know, movies. Um, et cetera, that would teach people how to like avoid that sort of situation. You know, how do you, how do you make sure that there's uh, a way of a uh, roadmap, if you will, so that you can, you know. I don't think it's avoidable. Uh, I don't see how it is. Okay. No, not really. But, um, I mean, it, 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 you, look, I don't, you know, how long have you and your wife known each other we've known each other for 30 some odd years 31 32 years 33 doesn't almost. she still surprise you oh yeah yeah, yeah. Gotcha. one of these days she may really surprise <laughs> that's that's hope not too much yeah and, i hear you <laughs> and uh when you hurt okay yeah. and people change and um and for better and for the worse relationships undergo change I don't see how you can possibly prepare yourself for the the, the notion, you know, that, that nothing that ever happens to another human being that changes that person will affect the relationship. That's that's out of the question. These things are going to happen. You're going to either cope with them or you're not. Okay. And, and uh, so I don't think you can ever prepare uh, for life in a way that uh, no matter what happens, you're ready. Okay, so let me ask you a question that about that. Sorry, Doug. That's fundamental storytelling. Go ahead. The the essential moment in any story, in every scene, virtually in every beat of every scene, is the violation of expectation. Okay. Character enters a scene <clears throat> with certain desires. They have what we call a scene intention. There's something they want in that immediate now, in that place. Mm -hmm. They have a, something they want out of life, and they want to take a step toward it. And so they, they 
in this scene, they need to get whatever, okay? <clears throat> if what they think will happen, happens. If the other people in the scene react the way they, the character expected, if they themselves react the way they expected, and then everything happens the way they expected, that <clears throat> is, a, is an absolutely dreadful scene. That's a boring scene, yeah. Boring as it possibly can be. Because it's not what matters. All right. What matters is you go into a moment in life with an expect with a desire and an expectation. If I do this, that'll cause that person to say this or do that, and I'll get what I want. And you take that action and and they react in a way you never saw coming. Uh -huh. And they do or say things that are just off the wall <laughs> and suddenly a gap opens up between expectation and result <clears throat> the violation of expectation forces the character now to look into themselves to look into the other person to look into the circumstances and figure out how and why did what just happened happen what can i do now and improvise what can I do now in order to continue to pursue what I want? Okay. Um, and because that is the essence of life, is that you're constantly having to improvise when things, you know, uh, happen in ways you can't predict. And is so that basically expectation is the stuff and substance of story. Is that basically the inciting incident as well, that there's a gap between? No, inciting incident is a big one of those. It's a big one of those. Yeah. The inciting yeah. incident is a, is the event that starts the story <clears throat> that throws life radically out of balance and arouses the desire <clears throat> the character wants. And so the inciting incident could be a coincidence. I mean, literally lightning strikes. Uh -huh. or it, could be a, it could be a decision. <clears throat> Somebody says, I want to change my life. You know, and 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 decides to do that. And so it could be a choice a character makes, or a random coincidence that happens to them. Uh, <clears throat> either way, but now their life is out of balance. Right. Now they need something, a situation, a change, something. Could be a, a thing. Could be money. Could be whatever. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Need something to put life back into balance, and they go in pursuit of that. And they go, you know, scene by scene, they go into situations uh, with expectations. And, uh, and those expectations are constantly being violated. And so they have to improvise. They have right. to use themselves in ways they've never before. They have to have an understanding of things they never had before. And on it goes. All right. It's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, I've, I'm interested in sh very short term, short stories like um, moth storytelling five minute stories kind of thing um but it still has to have that i mean all seems like all story has to have yes, something like that in it in order for it to be a story yeah otherwise otherwise it, it, it's a poem <clears throat> you know you can describe a feeling in a poem mm -hmm. you could describe a sunset in a poem you can describe a desire in a poem. And a poem, <clears throat> many poems have a pivot, of course, where things do change. But mm -hmm. a poem could be 
is static in a sense that it's just language used like music <clears throat> to express a feeling and a, 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 an experience of some kind. Oh. And there's no turning point. <clears throat> but that's poetry. So a story needs to have a turning point at some point. Things change. Yeah. Why, you know, why do we tell stories? <clears throat> we, for a lot of reasons, uh, but the biggest motivation is to cope with change. Okay. <clears throat> and that, you know, in any story, the lives of the characters at the end of the story is not what it was at the beginning. Right. Right. Things have changed and they have struggled. They may or may not get what they want, <clears throat> but they're not the same as they were. And um, stories then, you know, try to prepare us uh, for change of what, you know, what could happen in circumstances in the future and, and give us some insight into uh, how to cope. Got it. So that's just on the real basic thing. How, how do you define story? What is a story? It said it's different from a poem. It's different from just a set of facts, like an assembly line of first this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened. You know, so it's not just a assemblage. How do you define stories per se? Well, it's a it's an arc of change. I mean, that's that's what's essential to it. Okay. It, uh, but it's changed through conflict. Change through conflict. It's not, it's not like change in the weather. <laughs> All right. And so. Um, a story is a is, you know is a some representation of humanity because even if it's a cartoon or whatever I mean Bugs Bunny uh, represents human beings a certain kind of human being <laughs> and, uh, and and so it's it's a is a there's a character uh, who's a metaphor for humanity mm -hmm. um, who uh, struggles to achieve a desire. And their life undergoes change for better or worse. Do stories always have to have an antagonist? Well, there's some, there's some negative force. Some negative force. Uh, the, the you know great stories often often the antagonist is the character himself or herself. I mean their oh. own their own their own inner conflicts, their own contradictory desires. I mean, in many ways, uh, you know, human beings are their own worst enemies. <clears throat> and so um, uh, there will be conflict, but at what level and from what direction, who can say? Because <clears throat> life, you know, is very, is a multi-level. There's the whole subconscious world in a human being. And then there's all your conscious thoughts, <clears throat> um, your personal relationships, friends, family, lovers, social conflicts institutions and individuals in society <clears throat> who block your way. And then of course, uh, all the forces of time and space, especially time running out. <clears throat> and so life is a multi-layered, huge, massively complex experience. And, um, and so whether forces of antagonism can come from any of those levels or any combination of those levels, uh, so then that there's no there's no need for necessary need for right. an antagonist. Gotcha. That, that force, that negative force, doesn't have to be personified. Gotcha. 
Now I just, you know, I just published a book on the action genre. And in the action genre, uh, <clears throat> the negative force is personified. There's a villain, right, right, right. there's an antagonist, okay. <clears throat> but um, uh, that that's not there's no necessity for that. Just it's just right. one way uh, to bring a negative force <clears throat> uh, into uh, <clears throat> to interact with a human being's desire. Do you have a concept in your book? called um, the negation of the negation. And I have to admit, I haven't been able to quite grasp that entirely. What What is the negation well, of it's the negation? And it's my fault. <clears throat> um, when I wrote Story, which was what, over 25 years ago, um, I hadn't myself figured it out. I knew what it was. <clears throat> I knew that, that what the negation of the negation is. Uh, um, uh, but um, I couldn't figure out and, uh, exactly, and that, so I didn't explain it as well as I have in the lectures ever since. Oh. Um, um, but very simply, <clears throat> there are four, con there are negative forces in life, some of which are just sort of contrary to what you want, and they resist what you want. But then there are forces that are contradictory, that are the direct opposite uh, of what you want. Love, hate, life, death, freedom, okay. slavery, justice, injustice. So those are the direct opposites of the positive, okay? Mm -hmm. But they are not the limit of human experience. <clears throat> the limit of, in terms of justice, the limit of human experience is not crime breaking the law, injustice. It gets much worse than that. <laughs> uh, in terms of love, <clears throat> the, the, the hatred is, is not the worst of things. People who say, I hate you, and they mean it, that's bad. It's not the worst. And so the negation of the negation is you take that negative, like hate or injustice, <clears throat> and you do... You make it all the more powerful by one of two things that are not in the book, and this is why people didn't quite get it. You take what is negative, like hatred. <clears throat> hatred is honest. When somebody says, I hate you, and they mean it, it's ugly, but it's honest. Mm. <clears throat> right? Yep. And you take that and you hide it behind a lie. So hatred, masquerading as love. Uh-huh, uh-huh, someone, uh -huh. someone who pretends to love you, who dupes uh -huh. you into thinking that they love you, while they really hate you, and they're out to destroy you, and that's far worse than an honest hatred. Uh -huh. or, or you take hatred which is directed at the world, I hate you, okay? And you turn it inward on the character. Ah. <clears throat> and so even a misanthrope loves one person. <clears throat> but when you take hatred and you turn it inward on the character, it becomes self-hate. And self-hate is the deepest, most powerful form of hatred. Hmm. Worse 
than just hating other people. And so the negation of the negation is how can you take what is negative and make it all the more powerful in a story? You either disguise it with a lie Mm -hmm. or you take what is normally thrown at the world and you turn it inward on your character. And in one of those two ways, you magnify the power of the negative side of the story and force a character to cope with, with forces in life that they would you know, never normally have to confront to take that character to the limit of their human experience. Got it. That makes total sense. Thank you. I wish you'd told me that 30 years ago. I'm just kidding. Well, I'm writing, I'm writing uh, story two. Oh, are you really? Yeah. I'm just finishing chapter two, story two, uh, as we speak. And so uh, it'll be out, I don't know, a year or two. And uh, and so when story two comes out, it'll be, I mean, story one was written 25, 26 years ago. And I've learned a lot in those years. And I, so I just, it brings me to it. another question is how do you, uh, how do you do so much stuff? I mean, I would listen to an interview of you the other day where you were talking about long form storytelling and yeah. um, in television and, uh, and there's seasons after season of things. And you seem to have watched them all and you're also lecturing all over the planet and you're also writing books and i mean how many hours are in your day there robert well, that's the that's that's an illusion not a i love it yeah so um <clears throat> you find time and second of all you know when you really love something and it, you know it, it it obsesses you in a sense. Um, when you look like you're not working, you're working. Hmm. So I'm sitting there, you know, having dinner. Uh, and I am fascinated with whatever I encountered that day. Um, and so, um, and so uh, there's, all, there's, a, there's enough time hmm. in the day if you just don't waste it. Right, right. Does your then, does your wife share your st- love of story? Right, she's a novelist. Okay. Yeah. So, do you watch she, the uh, TV shows together? Do you watch them? Um... We do. We do. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. She's a writer. <clears throat> she her, she's got a wonderful novel uh, called Me Then. Nice. <clears throat> me, me comma then. It's um, semi autobiographical. But it's 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 you know it's too it's there's she she wanted she could have called it a memoir but but she invented too much <laughs> so uh, but me then is a beautifully told story she's a wonderful writer and you you were mentioning short stories and she's uh, she's working on some short stories right now so so we share that and we and we we she's a musician as well and and uh, and. Uh, good part of her life she spent um, as a rather prompt, well-known New York painter. Really? So she's got great talent. She was, she went to school at up in New York at uh, the Eastman School of Music sure. at the University of Rochester. Yeah. And uh, so she was a operatic soprano in her wow. youth. Then she became a painter, then became a writer. She's just... Cool. 
bursting with talent. Wow. Must be quite a household, by heavens. That's that's awesome. So let me ask you this. The um, All these concepts that are so, you know, in the long-form storytelling of, of season after season of television or in a full-length movie or a full-length play or whatever, I can totally see how all this has room to work itself out. What do you do? Like, I know you wrote a book called Storynomics. How do you apply this to advertising or marketing or anything short form like that? Well, the best way, it, it, it's, about, it's about persuasion. <clears throat> and marketing is, you know, persuasion. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're trying to persuade people to hire your service or buy your product. Right. Um, and uh, and using a story, putting it in story form, uh, is the most effective, powerful way uh, to um, persuade people uh, to to hire your service, purchase your product. Um, and uh, uh, what's normally done in marketing is uh, is bragging and promising. All right, advertising. We're the biggest, we're the best, right? We're the newest and promising. We'll do this for you. We'll do that for you, whatever. Um, it's bragging and promising. And uh, uh, in uh, in business school, they call that, um, uh, what do you call that? Uh, um, there's terms, very neutral terms for it. Um, and, but it's bragging and promising. It says <clears throat> features and benefits. That's the yeah, yeah, business yeah. features and benefits, right? Um, and um, the risk is <clears throat> by bragging and promising, people react to it against it uh, because they'll sense it's bullshit. Right. You can't fulfill that promise. It's not. It, your product is not really superior. It's just like everybody else's, <clears throat> and it does what everybody else does, etc. And uh, uh, if it's the cheapest, it probably does it worse than anybody else. <laughs> uh, and so there's a very cynical audience out there now. <clears throat> so marketing becomes very, very difficult. And uh, but a story, if you can get them to identify with the protagonist of a story and take that character through a couple turning points and show how your product or your service solves their problem. Mm -hmm. If you go from problem to solution in, in a storified way uh, and get the your, your, your client or your consumer to identify with your protagonist, and realize that you understand that <clears throat> when a, a company makes it clear, we know what you, what is the problem in your life. <clears throat> we empathize with you struggling with that problem. We have researched and developed something <clears throat> that will <clears throat> help you enormously solve that problem. And here's how it's going to happen. <clears throat> And if you tell them a story that takes them from problem to solution with a, a character with whom they, they can identify, mm -hmm. um, that moves them to go out into the world and repeat 
that story in their own life <clears throat> to buy your product, hire your service. The problem with all this, I mean, is it's really, really hard to do. Storytelling demands talent, creativity of the highest order, great imagination, knowledge, insight, skill, <clears throat> okay? Bragging and promising. <clears throat> uh, PowerPoint, PowerPoint presentations in, a, in, a, in, in business is simply a junior high school essay with special effects. That's that's the PowerPoint. You did it when you were 12 years old. Right. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's what I'm telling you. Here's what I told you. Right? It's the yep. it's junior high school essay with special effects. Okay. Anybody can do that. Right. Anybody can do that. Okay. Yep. Telling the story. <clears throat> demands creativity and talent. And most people in business don't have either of them. All right. So who's, who's... You have, to, you have to hire people. You have to, if you really want to do it, you have to do it right. And, you know, then you, that's why you go to ad agencies. What's an so example of, What's an example of somebody who did it right? Oh, uh, 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 the... Uh, Amazon does it, but not uh, this Amazon. Um, I'm sorry. This happens when you get into your 80s. Uh, names just yeah. uh, fly out of your I think that you um, talked well, about Well, let Apple. me ask you. Let me, let me ask you. <clears throat> what's, what's, what's your favorite ad on TV and who made it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think... Um, these days, I think it's beer commercials actually are are pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, but I was also thinking of I'm I'm talking to you on an Apple computer here, and, and Apple used to have some. Apple's great. Apple uh, Apple gets it really. Yeah, Apple does it really well, especially around Christmas time. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, a lot of you know makers of um, cell phones. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot number of cell phone ads are uh, are uh, uh, wonderfully told stories, and um, and you're right about beer commercials. I actually, oh, I never thought that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the the Apple has always uh, throughout its history has, has always been a good um, uh, storyteller. Yeah, uh, I, I I will admit I that I, I have. Go ahead. One of the worst storytellers is an Apple competitor called I, IBM. Hmm. IBM can't tell a story with crap. I don't know why, but they just can't. And it's all bragging and promising. And it's all, you know, I, I don't know why they, you know, <clears throat> I have a suspicion. I don't know who the executives are at IBM <clears throat> or other companies. But a lot of executives, a lot of people in the C-suites do not trust stories. Hmm. <clears throat> to them, stories mean fairy tales. <clears throat> stories mean bullshit, right. etc. To them, storytelling <clears throat> um, is childish. 
And so when somebody comes into the C-suite and says, here's the story we're going to tell about our product, there's a negative, there's a pushback. <clears throat> and I suspect at IBM the pushback is severe. Whereas at Apple, <clears throat> they have a different culture. And Apple just says, you know, come tell me a story. I mean, they've done it for decades. Um, and so some companies are, are much better at it than others. Uh, but the ones who don't tell stories or don't tell them very well, I suspect are those companies where the executives are really suspicious. <laughs> they don't trust it. But I think you made the point once that um, more and more these days, it's not only good, but it's kind of necessary because people have become so um, just turned off to the advertising. Yeah, young people, millennials and Gen Zs. I mean, they have they have ad they've blockers heard, on their phones. They've, they've, heard, they've heard advertising of all kinds all their lives. Yeah. People are constantly pushing things at them and uh, to buy. And they, they, they're, they're sick of it. I mean, they don't buy any of it. Um, and, uh, uh, but they go online and their friends say, you know, I bought this and I tried that and whatever. And if their friends like it, you know, then they, uh, and the word of mouth then spreads. Um, uh, but yeah, young people are adverse to um, <clears throat> conventional marketing. <clears throat> they, um, they resist it. But tell them a good story and yeah they're with you like anybody else uh, so we're talking about this I'm, I'm remembering um i think it was the 90s maybe it was even earlier but the, there was an ad campaign that went on for quite some time kind of a long forms advertising campaign uh, for apple versus ibm yeah yeah there was 60 of those <clears throat> 60 60 variations yeah, yeah John Hodgman must have made enough money. Right. Yeah, right. He was the IBM. I mean, I'm sure he did, in fact, because John Hodgman now uh, is an essayist, a very comic, wonderful essayist who appears occasionally in the New York Times. And that seems to be all he cares about in life because I think those IBM commercials, those uh, not the IBM commercials, those <laughs> Apple commercials, uh, right. made him and his partner um, excessively rich. But they were brilliant, just yeah. brilliant. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating to me because they they stick in your mind too. That's the other thing about story is it it's not just you know this thing. It's like features and benefits. It's like there's a there's something that sticks with you. You you tell your friends about it. You remember the one where the uh, uh, John Hodgman is counting money and. Uh, uh, and uh, what was what was the computer flaw that <clears throat> that um, uh, the, I don't know if it was, it was the Dell computer, but no, the uh, the IBM computer had a what was it? Um, I forget the name of it. It was a flaw. God, this is thirty some years ago. <clears throat> um, and uh, and he's counting up money. Uh, for advertising, 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 fix the problem. Advertising, 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 advertising <laughs> right. fix right. the problem. Right. Right. And the, the Apple computer says, do you think that much money is going to fix that problem? And Hodgman looks at it, and he pushes the money into the big piles. And now we just put it all on advertising. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, 
That's a wonderful story, right? Yeah, no, that's true. Turning point, greatly told. Problem, problem. Yeah. And the solution, of course, is uh, ironic in that it's no solution at all. So, <clears throat> yeah, those things stick. Yeah, exactly. Whereas the, the bragging about about the, <clears throat> any product uh, is forgotten almost instantly. So tell us about your, um, you have a kind of catchphrase in your, in your story thing, which is to, to write the truth. Hmm. So, yeah, whenever I uh, autograph a book, I was, that's the inscription. <clears throat> so um, tell me about that. It's the, um, <clears throat> it's the uh, admonition uh, against uh, cliche. <clears throat> um, uh, storytelling is so prolific and has been for, you know, centuries uh, that it has encrusted itself with <clears throat> countless uh, cliches. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, so people use, and the, a, a cliche is a really good idea, a really superb idea that somebody had a long <laughs> time ago. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and because it's such a good idea, it's been used again and again and again and again, become a cliche. <clears throat> um, and in the uh, the the rush that writers have to to sell, <clears throat> um, to you know make a living from their writing, the, the urge to <clears throat> to sell their writing, um, their impulse is to copy what is successful. And that means all that, you know, tends to mean a lot of cliches. All right. Uh, and so I tell them, no, write the truth. <clears throat> uh, it means sit down with whatever you're doing. Uh, you know, you learn from the past, of course. But you examine your own writing and you ask yourself, do I believe it? Mm -hmm. Do I believe my own writing? Do I believe that my characters do the things they're doing <clears throat> be confronted with the negative forces of life that they are they're <clears throat> confronted with <clears throat> that they would act the way they act in an effort to get what they want do i actually believe this is this the truth of what it is to be a human being from my point of view hmm. <clears throat> it's not about absolute truth because there is no such thing but there is subjective truth. There is what you believe <clears throat> to be true. Got it. And if, if you express, dramatize beautifully, what you believe to be true, you will find readers, you will find an audience of people who will nod and go, yeah, that's life, that's true. Hmm. Uh, and, um, and so my uh, write the truth is just a step in the, in the war on cliches and uh, to try to get writers to trust themselves. And, uh, but I know how hard it is because if you're really honest, you realize that the vast majority of experiences in life are negative. Hmm. If you're really honest, you realize that the vast majority of human beings 
go to their grave with a sense of having, in some large way, failed. Hmm. As parents, as human beings, as artists, as whatever, <clears throat> they um, were disappointed, if nothing else, that they didn't get more out of life than they got. <clears throat> and that um, very, very few people go to the, their grave with a big smile on their face thinking I've led the most satisfying possible life and I've done everything <clears throat> and more of what I'm capable of now. <laughs> okay. And so that, you know, the truth of life is that um, it's it, <clears throat> the negative outweighs the positive. <clears throat> but then, um, in an effort to sell, uh, their fear is I will turn people off. <clears throat> Although, you know, the greatest stories ever told are tragedies. <clears throat> uh, but nonetheless, uh, they're afraid of the negative. Uh, but if you, you know, if you go, if you go today, if you look at, you know, what's on the screen, especially um, in long form television today, it's almost all negative. Hmm. Dark stories. In fact, I'm going to do a, write a little piece uh, for my, my uh, people um, um, on the, 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 the modern, the new today's anti-hero <clears throat> and anti-heroes today are different than the anti-heroes of the past in the anti-heroes of the past <clears throat> yes they were opposed to society and that's what made them anti but in their heart of hearts <clears throat> they are they had a, a, a core of goodness right uh, right <clears throat> and so even the you know butch cassidy and the sundance kid have their friendship i mean there's there's a positive somewhere in there. Uh, now, anti-heroes are really anti. <laughs> and uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing lovable about any of them, except they've got brains. Hmm. And they're Walter White. They have huge brains, even though they're dark as they can be. Hmm. And it's that mental power and, and achieving like Walter White does what you want out of life. Um, I'm, I'm going to do a little piece, give you a little preview. Um, there's um, three, I, these, I just caught up with these three films for, for TV and um, I enjoy them all. Here, Emily the Criminal. Uh, film called Old Henry and one I just saw last night, 99 Homes. <clears throat> the protagonists of all three of those are the modern anti-hero. And uh, uh, even the title tells you, Emily the Criminal. And it's all about survival. <clears throat> That's correct. The greatest problem now is just survival. Yeah. If you have to become a criminal, if you have to become a criminal in order to survive, do it really, really well. Do it really well, exactly. <laughs> and that's Emily the criminal. She does it really, really well. And she's got so, real guts. She's tough. But they are, the 
love even it. even with the antiheroes, though, there are they have that gap between the expectation and the results. So the the drama is can they get across that gap or can they find a way to to get that thing? So it's still there. The the, the most current antihero does not have a, a moral center. Hmm. Not anymore. Uh, and uh, and so. Uh, my sense of things is that society is catching on to the darker, deeper truths that um, uh, that in the past were too poly, you know, from, from the modern point of view, very romantic, very idealistic, very Pollyanna, um, and uh, uh, and so the writing is getting darker and darker, and I think that's wonderful. You think it's wonderful? Yeah. Because? Because we're finally going to understand human beings for what they really are. Hmm. There's a war on. There's wars all over this world, but there's one big one going on right now. And if that is not the most powerful exercise in darkness, I don't know what is. Here we are in the 21st century. <clears throat> Human beings driven by their own obsessions, blinded by <clears throat> uh, lies, <clears throat> attacking and killing other human beings. <clears throat> I mean, this. <clears throat> and so, how can you uh, how can you tell stories today and pretend it's all going to turn out all right? Hmm. Okay. So, uh, what I see now, the best writing uh, is really good, really good writing. And um, uh, writers are exploring the, uh, the dark side of human nature in ways they've never done before. And I think that's wonderful because that's the ultimate purpose of story is to express to one another what it is to be a human being, honestly. Hmm. Wow. And some of your long-form television shows like um, Breaking Bad is what the sort of things you're thinking about? Oh, but Better Call Saul is even better. <laughs> better Call Saul. Better Call Saul is the best, <clears throat> best long-form series I know yet. And, uh, and uh, Better Call Saul is an exploration of darkness uh, with a complexity and a, and a wonderful dark comic sense. Um, huh. it's just, it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. I, I watched an episode of uh, Horace and Pete yesterday for the first time. Um, oh, I heard you? you talk about it. Yeah. I heard you talk about it in an in interview that you did. And yeah. I had never even heard of it. And so I. Well, you had to pay money to see it. What did you pay? Ten bucks or something? I think I, I'm. It's on Hulu now or something. So I think it's free for. Oh, really? I think so. Is, I don't think yeah. I paid. Any, yeah. <clears throat> well, because uh, Louis C.K. was, you know, trying to create a, a, a way. He wanted to make movies <laughs> that were, you know, somehow self self uh, financing. Mm -hmm. And so you want to put, a, you know, right. right the feature film or TV series, whatever, 
and uh, and not have to um, uh, beg, borrow, and steal from a from a streaming service. Uh, and uh, they would, you know, that the they would sell tickets basically. Uh, but now it's it's available. Yeah, it's really um, it's really good. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Well, yes, I did. I was, I was, I was tuned in rather late, so I didn't watch the whole thing. I have to admit, but, uh, but yeah, it's brilliant, actually. I thought, and what a cast! Good heavens, Alan Alda is Uncle Pete. He's he's a badass. Yeah, yeah. It's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> but I watched it first because of the fascination with the Irish family that you'd mentioned. Is that uh... <laughs> there's a scene. There's a scene, I don't know if it was in the episode you saw, I don't want to spoil it, but I'll just give you the, <clears throat> where a woman um, talks about her love affair with an 80-something-year-old guy. And what attracted her was his, his smell. She just loved the way he smelled. I never saw anything like that before. <laughs> and the and this the monologue that she gives about their whole relationship and their the writing was just superb. I mean, it's a, you know the Louis C.K. is the one the, his, that that writing of that series is you know is at the level of Eugene O'Neill, uh, Tennessee Williams. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's as good as a uh, as it gets. Yeah, I heard and, you say uh, that. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then himself, Louis C.K., screwed up the way men do. Jesus, men are so stupid. (laughs) And just really stupid. Yes, they are. Aren't those those men? He's a a genius. He's a great talent. He's one of the great comic minds of our day. And stupid. Just stupid. Uh, and then, but he's back. He's back, and he's just as great as ever. Uh, <clears throat> you know, he's he just sold out Madison Square Garden. Oh, is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to buy a ticket, and we're none left. Madison oh. Square Garden. Not, what is that? Two thousand people? Something? I don't know. I don't know. So he's you know he, he's he's a great talent, and so <clears throat> he's he's you know one of our you know yeah. Greatest, so you know, he'll he'll be all right. He'll be fine. He'll be okay. Yeah, we don't have to worry about Louis. But I just wish, I just wish that that had been a greater success to encourage him to come up with another cast of characters and uh, and to to do this because I'd pay ten bucks to see something, you know, that's of quality. Yeah, totally. Uh, But anyway, yeah, he's he's terrific. Very nice. So let me just ask you one final question. If um, you could go back and say to your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would that be? Take more time with the women you meet. Don't rush into things. Okay. I have rushed into things too often in my life, but I got lucky, and uh, I met 
you know, the woman I love and I'm married to now for 20 years. Uh, and, uh, and I almost blew that one. So, um, so that would be my advice. Just, okay, good. You know, uh, I, I, I did say it was the last thing I'd ask you, but I, I lied. Um, I have one more thing. Cool. cool it. You, um, you also have said in past interviews and, and things that I've listened to that it takes about 10 years for somebody to become good at screenwriting or to, and or 10 failures or 10, 10 screenplays yeah, that they've written. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a real testament to, to persistence and, and not quitting. Well, it's just, uh, it's just fact. I mean, if you, if you, uh, you know, were to make a list of all the, you know, the best of the best and whatever, and uh, you went into their biographies, each and every one, and uh, figured out, find out uh, how old were they when they sold their first screenplay. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably in their 30s or 40s. Uh, on the other hand, there are these, you know, <clears throat> surprising, especially in the action genre, <clears throat> uh, uh, young writers, but action, you know, is for young people. And, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and, and supernatural or science fiction action of various kinds, <clears throat> the superheroes and supervillains, uh, <clears throat> but even the tough and gritty action stories uh, that take place, you know, in city streets and <clears throat> whatever. Uh, but action is a genre. Uh, the young writers uh, <clears throat> can tackle uh, because they um, there's a certain complexity of character, but it's 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 not Louis C.K. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, but generally speaking, <clears throat> it takes ten years of hard work and failure to be a good anything. Hmm. If, if you were, you know, if you had to have an operation, would you like to be operated on by some uh, doctor who just got out of medical school? <laughs> or the guy who's like, been doing it for 10 years. I'd like to see some gray hairs in that head. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to, you know, be, be under the knife of somebody who's been in that part of the human anatomy a few times before you. If you were in trouble with the law, would you want somebody to represent you who just got out of law school? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I want Johnny Cochran. <laughs> I want somebody who knows how to win. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so how long does it take <clears throat> to master surgery, to master the human body, the human mind, <clears throat> the social system, the criminal justice system, business of all kinds. You know, how long does it take to become a good business person, a good whatever, yeah. decade, uh, with exceptions, <clears throat> but generally. Yeah. And so uh, there's no difference. Why, why would it be easier to be a writer than a surgeon? It's not. So um, it's going to take time. Okay. Well, thank you very much for all that you've done for writers everywhere to make that time a little less um, onerous to learn the lessons that we need to learn through your story book and story seminars, and et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, thank you for teaching all those people who have written such great movies that we've all enjoyed over the years because they took your course. And uh, so they just read my book and they did it themselves. I, you know, I, I can't. Yes, man. I, I enjoy <clears throat> that people who have uh, that I've taught have had great success, uh, but um, but I don't take credit for it. They had the talent. They studied, they worked hard. <clears throat> they came to me to learn what they didn't know they did, they used it. Uh, and so um, <clears throat> uh, I'm pleased, <clears throat> um, but I don't pat myself on the back. Okay, well, I'll have to do it for you then. So um, thank you for, for doing it. And thank you for being here today because it's been a, a real thrill and honor. For yeah, you. that was great, that was great. Wonderful questions, thank you very much. Okay. You know, just Bye hit the now. outro here and we'll just hang around. See you soon. Okay. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks.